RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Jim DeVico. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 373 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse, recorded live on Tuesday, July 10th, 2018, and available for download or streaming on Friday, July 13th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Kenna. And I'm Anthony. All right, Anthony, why don't you tell us what's coming up this week? Well, this week we trek out the Priority One Away mission to Ticonderoga, New York, where Jace and Elijah take a tour of the original series set created by James Colley. We also invite Nick Dugan from Star Trek Online to talk about his experience working with the Make-A-Wish Foundation and how you can join Priority One in helping us raise money for a worthy cause. And more on that shortly. In Star Trek Online and gaming news, we'll be trekking out the latest news that the gaming world has to offer. And of course, as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, those hailing frequencies are always open, and you know that we'd love to hear from you between our episodes. So please, reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Priority One Pod, or you can send us an email to incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Now, Captains, those of you who are regular listeners of Priority One will know that this is the part of the show where we normally ask you to consider supporting us through Patreon. But this July, we're doing something a little different. And instead, we're asking you to show your support for kids with critical illnesses by making a donation to the Make-A-Wish Foundation in America. Now, for those of you who don't know, Make-A-Wish is America's largest wish-granting organization. And with help of donations from people like you and me, they've granted the wishes of over 300,000 children since it was founded in 1980. Now, we know that summer can be a difficult financial time for many of us. Planning for summer holidays and con season can be really expensive. But please, take a few minutes while you're doing all that to consider that there are children in your community who might never be able to go on that holiday or visit that convention, regardless of the cost. Make-A-Wish is trying to change that, and even a small donation from you can help make the difference. Now we want to raise $1,000 this month, and you can make it happen. Just go to PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash Make-A-Wish, and it will take you straight to our donation page. You can pay by credit card or PayPal, so it's dead easy. And in fact, we've already raised over $300 thanks to generous donations from listeners like Anthony and Daria, David S., and Christine. 
And of course, if you're not listening to us in the States, then I would also encourage you to donate to Make-A-Wish in your country. And please let us know so that we can give you a shout out as well. Now, you might be wondering why we chose to support Make-A-Wish this year. And the truth is, it was inspired by one of the developers of Star Trek Online. Nick Dugid, a.k.a. Taco Fangs, environment artist for Star Trek Online, is a friend of the show and a volunteer for Make-A-Wish. So let's talk to him and trek out his experiences with Make-A-Wish America. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. And joining us this episode of Priority One is Star Trek Online's environment artist, Nick Dugan, a.k.a. Taco Fangs, a.k.a. Tumor Boy. Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks. So, Nick, uh, for those of our listeners who are not familiar with your work, remind us exactly what you do at Cryptic Studios. Uh, So, I'm an environment artist. That means that I make the backgrounds and the um, levels that you run around, essentially. Things that I have made that you may recognize include the uh, Voyager interior kit, the uh, TNG Galaxy interior kit, uh, remake of Earth Space Dock, and then also the rebuild recently of Deep Space Nine. So, Nick, we've had you on the show before, um, and we wanted to work with you because you've had a a great deal of involvement with uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Um, And, you know, one of the things that we had discussed as a team earlier this year is that we wanted to be more involved in the community and and rallying the troops, rallying our listeners uh, to support a great cause. Now, Make-A-Wish is, like I said earlier, something that you've been involved with for quite a long time. And I want to ask why. But also tying into that question is it, it does have a bit of a special connection for you, right? Because even in your name, Tumor Boy, there's a history there that you've shared with us before. Um, do you mind sharing that with us again? Not at all. Uh, so even before Make-A-Wish, uh, where the name Tumor Boy came from is I had a brain tumor when I was uh, 10. I was diagnosed with a craniopharyngioma, which is a benign tumor. Benign being kind of a relative word for... <laughs> For a you know golf ball sized tumor in your brain, and if you guys I don't need to, I guess I don't need to go into all of it, but if you guys know brain anatomy at all, there's kind of where your optic nerves cross, and there's your pituitary gland, and that's kind of where the, the tumor was. So I had two surgeries, and then afterwards I was uh, granted a wish through the Make Wish Foundation, and this was in 1992, and I wished for a computer, and I ended up getting a. 386 DX40 with a, an 80 megabyte hard drive and a and two megabytes of RAM. It was a big deal at the time, and I did things with Make a Wish kind of off and on as a kid. Um, I kept in touch with my wish granter uh, Pat Robert, who actually just retired and has been granting wishes for the last 30 years or something. And so then, yeah, so then life happens, and as an adult now, I have uh, gone back and volunteered with them myself. So if you would, um, tell us a little bit about what it was like going through all of that as a young boy, really, and the difference that your wish made in your life. What what did you do with that computer, first of all? Mm-hmm. So as a kid, there, um, it's, I mean, it's, you know, everybody's, it's trouble, right? It's, it's, uh, it's hard going through that. But at the same time, as a 10-year-old kid, you know, adults seem to know what they're doing. And the whole thing happened really quickly. Um, what this came about from my, my eyes, it's hard to tell probably from here, but if I look at the camera, my left eye should be probably pointing off over that way someplace. 
And so my mom took me to her eye doctor thinking I just had a lazy eye. And he referred us to another eye doctor over on this side of the hill. I was in Santa Cruz at the time. And that doctor took photos of my retinas and my left retina was almost white, which meant there was no blood getting to it. And so he sent us to Stanford and they did an MRI and they um, said, come back in five days and we'll operate. So the turnaround on that was very rapid. And so there wasn't a whole lot to, you know, to mull over. It was just kind of, it all happened. And as a kid, you, you know, adults are in charge and they seem to know what's going on and they say what, what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. And you just kind of go along with it. So at the time, I mean, I think it would be much scarier now than it was at the time for me. How did you get involved then with Make-A-Wish? So what's that process like for, for somebody who's battling an illness at a young age? And, and what was it like to, to receive that wish? So I don't think I knew about it before the tumor. And I, I'll, I'll get this out of the way now. Uh, there's a misconception that Make-A-Wish is for terminally ill kids. It is not. It is for kids with life-threatening illnesses. So a golf ball sized tumor in your brain definitely threatened your life, but it doesn't, it isn't a guaranteed death sentence, right? There's a lot of kids who get their wishes granted that go on to live perfectly healthy, happy lives. Um, so the process is basically being recommended by somebody. You get referred to the company, the, the organization. At the time, I think that referral had to be by another family who had received a wish or maybe from the doctors. I can't remember exactly right now. Anybody can uh, refer a kid. And so if you know somebody who you think deserves to have their wish granted, you can refer them online. So we were referred by somebody at the hospital, but I honestly can't even remember or maybe I, don't, I never knew who that was. Certainly over the course of the next few years, we got to know other wish families and re referred a few other people ourselves. Um, I ended up having another uh, a relapse and another surgery later on. And so uh, we got to know some more people then too. Yeah, so that's the introduction part. Then essentially what happens is that, you know, once they've made contact with Make-A-Wish or with you, then the Make-A-Wish people will get in touch with your doctors and, you know, basically verify that yes, you do qualify. If they all agree that you qualify, then you are assigned, assigned is the wrong word, but um, you get wish granters, which is the team that actually comes and talks to you, interviews you, talks about what you want to get. And then um, it's different now than it was back then in 1992. My wish granter, Pat, actually did the legwork to make my wish happen. So she had to, you know, basically get a budget from corporate and then find a local computer place that, to put together a computer for me you know, list out the specs and talk to them and get the, all of that stuff done. Today, uh, wish granters basically hand off the wish. They say, okay, this is what the kid wants. And we've got a whole interview packet that we go through and we send that back to corporate and then corporate takes care of all of the actual uh, legwork of the wish. And then they come back to us and we reveal it to the kid and send them off to their wish or, or give them their wish. It depends on what it is, you know. So this is getting uh, the following question might be a little personal. You asked for a computer and and now you're a digital environment artist for a mm. award-winning MMO. You know, is that out of that experience that that I now have a computer and I can now do these things? Like is that kind of where it's it really, I, 
yeah, I've thought about that a lot over the years. It's really hard to tell, you know, whether it's 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 steps in the process or whether they're just coincidental or whatever is really hard to tell. You know, I, I would probably still be interested in all of the same things that I'm interested in that or that I was interested in that led me down this path, even if I hadn't had my own computer. But certainly having my own computer exposed me to more things that made that process easier or led me in that direction, you know, especially because it was at age 10 and it wasn't like I was already 17 or something when that when I got the computer. So it's really hard to tell. I, I definitely played a lot of games on it. Um, you know, my parents, uh, the, you know, get, getting a wish granted is a big deal. And so you think a lot about it and you think about different things that you'd want to do or get or see or meet or whatever. And there were a lot of other things that we consider that I considered. And honestly, as a wish granter today, we really try to make sure that it is exactly what the kid wants and not just something that the parents have, uh, bestowed. But my parents definitely had an influence over me getting a computer. They knew that it would be helpful for school, um, and it certainly was. I got a printer and everything with it too, so I could print out reports and type things up. But you know, but it was a, a game device too. I, you know, I played Mist on that. I played SimCity 2000. Oh, um, I played. Uh, I was going to ask, what did yeah. you play? Oh, oh my yeah. god. Well, yeah, I played a lot of games. You know, <laughs> Rebel Assault. Um, wow. There's a lot of those that I I played on that computer and. and you know, I wouldn't have had the same exposure. You know, I had an NES at the time, but I would have been, wouldn't have had the same exposure to PC <laughs> games by any means. No. So that's that's certainly helpful in today's job, right? Or at least is related to today's job, if not. Yeah. All right. That's fantastic. Now, so now you're you're paying it forward, right? Now you're a part of the the organization. You're volunteer your time. It's a volunteer position, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, there must have been a moment in your adult life where you said, I need to do this. I need to, I need to give back. And you chose Make-A-Wish, presumably, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because of the experience that you had as a 10-year-old. What, how, how do you feel now being on the other side of that table? That's so cool. Um, so it, I will be honest in that my initial thoughts in joining Make-A-Wish were actually in college, and I thought, man, when I get a job, you know, so wishes cost money, right? And and that's what we're doing here. We're raising money for Make-A-Wish. And the average wish at the time of my wish was about $5,000, $3,000, something like that. Today, they're about ten grand. And, you know, I, in college, I was thinking, man, it'd be really cool if I could, like, you know, save up that amount of money and donate it and then, like, participate in a kid's wish because there's always the wish grantor helps out with the whole thing right and so i thought that those were paid positions i thought that that pat was an employee i didn't realize that she was a volunteer and so i thought if i could raise that money maybe i could kind of tag along on a wish again just to kind of feel like i'm paying back but also kind of experience that thrill again you know and so then you know i never raise that money myself uh, or save that up. But I did find out that the, that it was just a volunteer position. And so then I volunteered um, with them. So we're called wish granters. Uh, and like I said, we go, we interview the, the kid to, you know, figure out what they want and we pass, pass that off. And then we get to deliver the wish or celebrate the wish. So it depends on what the, the wish child is wished for. You know, it could be a thing. It could be something like a computer that we just deliver to them. It could be 
uh, a trip. You know, there are a lot of uh, Disneyland and Disney World trips. And so we'll we'll do like what we call a celebration where we aren't going on the, the trip with them, but we will have like a little party and we'll get some cake and things if they can have it. And we'll um, give them the tickets and we'll have to go over everything with the parents in terms of here's the itinerary, who's going to pick you up, here's what numbers to call, here's where, where you're staying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a bunch of kind of paperworky stuff that we have to do with those. Um, wishes could be to meet somebody. There's a lot of celebrity wishes where kids want to meet a certain person. And those are often kind of like travel wishes because usually that celebrity is not necessarily coming to your hometown. So we have to send you someplace to meet that person. And then what else? Wishes for things. Oh, you could wish to be somebody. So if you really wanted to be a firefighter or something, we can kind of give you an experience with um, with firefighters or you know things like that. Well, one of the people might be familiar with one of the recent headlines, and well, at least recent years rather, of the little boy who was Batman for a day. <laughs> yeah, that kid was a big deal. Yeah. Um, I, ironically, that was actually, a, at least from what I've heard, it was actually a kind of a cheap wish to grant because he was in San Francisco already, and it was basically just like drive him around in a black car for a while and and you know give him some you know an outfit and have him meet some you know bad guys and stuff but the whole city like rallied behind it and so there was all this extra stuff donated on top of it you know the the black lamborghini and the you know all of the other experiences that went along with that were really cool um and it was cool it it got a lot of press too yeah Um, yeah he was a big deal (laughs) and i think he had a good time i think so those pictures look good so one of the reasons that we have Nick on the show, as we mentioned earlier, is that uh, we've put together a donation page via Make-A-Wish America. And as Nick has already mentioned, all of these, all of this money goes, of course, towards granting a wish uh, to a child. And you can see essentially what, how much money goes towards what. And Make-A-Wish does a really good job at, at breaking that down. So, for instance, you know, $500 could provide a child with deep-sea fishing excursion. And up to $2,500 could provide a, a, a shopping spree for a child. As Nick mentioned, of course, there are various wishes, right? It could be something as uh, something simple or something extravagant, um, and Make-A-Wish does that. So we encourage you to head on over to that donation page. We'll, of course, have links in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting about it throughout the entire month of July. And if you'd like to volunteer, uh, I highly recommend it. It's a a pretty simple volunteer job. Uh, It's something that doesn't take a lot of time. You basically have, you know, a couple hours uh, once and then a couple hours another time for, uh, for each wish, and you can pick them up as you see fit and... Um, when you don't have time to do it, you don't have to do it and all that. So it's it's really uh, a good volunteering opportunity. And the, it's organized into chapters. So you'll have a, a local chapter that you would work with. Isn't that right? Right. right. I'm with the, the Greater Bay Area chapter of Make-A-Wish. Um, and even okay. that is kind of subdivided. So we've got North Bay and South Bay and Monterey. And all that, so. Well, thank you very much, Nick. I really appreciate you um coming on the show today and uh, of course talking about your history with Make-A-Wish and uh, helping us kick all this off. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Now let's activate transporters and send Elijah and Jace towards Ticonderoga, New York, where they take a tour of the original series Bridge with James Cawley. 
Captains, we have the pleasure of sitting here with James Cauley, the owner of the Star Trek Tour in Ticonderoga, New York. James, thank you so much for sitting here with us. Well, thanks so much for asking me to sit here with you. It's a, it's a pleasure to be asked. Absolutely. Thank you for the wonderful tour. This has been a fantastic experience. The team and I, uh, Jason and I, had spoken years ago about coming up and trying to... Uh, to set a time to visit the tour. We had heard so many great things about it, uh, and it's all true. I mean, this is a, a, a remarkable, remarkable tour. So we've never had you on the show before, but I'd like to go into a bit of the history of, uh, of this set tour, where the inspiration came from. Uh, tell us about the genesis of the project. Well, you know, it's, it's, it started as a kid, honestly. You know, you start running around the neighborhood playing Star Trek with your buddies. You know, and that's something that never left me. But I always had a fascination for what would it, what would it, what would it have been like to be on the show, to be a part of the show, um, whether in front of the camera or behind the camera. And that led me to making fan films for a while. And 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 part of the fascination of making the fan film, of course, is walking on the set. You know, not pretending so much that you're on the starship, but actually being on the set and feeling like you're a part of that that Hollywood magic. Um, so then about. A year and a half, two years ago, I guess the landscape started to shift, uh, as most people know, with fan films. And you know, by that point, I had already left the, the whole fan film thing. I was basically just you know, there um, helping others make the episodes and kind of going through the motions. But in the back of my mind, we, uh, you know, I had moved into this building and had been upgrading and building and adding and doing all these things because in the back of my mind, I wanted it um, you know, to be open to the public. So when the whole fan film shift occurred, um, you know, I, I called the people that I knew at CBS and pitched them the concept, and they were uh, very, very receptive to it. And it just took a few, you know, months to wind through the legal side of things, uh, you know, on their end, and uh, we opened the door. Here we are. Yeah, wonderful. Now, how many years has this taken uh, from inception to where we are today? Uh, Fifteen. Fifteen years. Easily, yeah. Now, for me, and Jason, I don't know if, if you felt this way too, probably one of the most fascinating things about it, and this is what you're introduced to at the start of the, of the tour, is that it, you're, not, it's, you're not trying to just replicate the bridge and the set, but in fact a sound stage. So you see plywood, you see the lights. Correct. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, again, it, th there is this unique magic to... Uh, any television show, uh, you know, whether it's Star Trek, whether it's MASH or, you know, Andy Griffith, what, whatever, whatever show, there's a unique magic to it. And I think we first come to these shows with a love of what we're seeing on the screen, the story, you know, we get caught up in all of that. But then um, there's this whole side of it that people, people are really into about how is it made. Um, and you can't, as you well know, to this day, if you want to visit a Hollywood set while they're filming, it just doesn't happen. I mean, it's rare, extremely rare. For a variety of reasons. You can't slow production down, insurance, all these things. So it, it's just, I think it's a novelty to be able to walk into this place and experience it as a set, you know, and not a fictional starship, although it's both. Uh, Star Trek The Experience had its success, I think, because it was more of a, it was more of a show. Um, you know, it was a true amusement park kind of, kind of atmosphere where um, you had people dressed up in costumes playing the parts, and it was the, a welcome to the 24th century kind of thing. And I didn't want to do that. I really wanted to take people back to the 1960s and give them an inside look, um, you know, as to how the show might have been put together. You know, one of the things that I loved as a fan growing up was being able to read the making of Star Trek by Gene Roddenberry and Stephen Whitfield. So in my mind, this was 
you know, an extension of that book. This was letting people walk through a set. So the tour, has, as it is now, has evolved over the years. You've added more rooms. I, I've followed it via Twitter and on your website. Um, and I understand you have more planned beyond that as well. Can you talk I, we do. Um, you know, the, the first focus was to do every standing set from the original series. And they had a couple of, of um, you know, swing sets, as they call them, that they might set up if the script required it, such as, you know, auxiliary control is something that we're looking at. We're also... Um, going to add emergency manual monitor, which is that room that Scotty would go up to look down over engineering. So those are a couple of the things that we're going to do to finish this off. You know, the other the other flip side of this is Star Trek: The Next Generation. Mm, yeah, you know, we've already <laughs> we've we've had a couple of great conversations. Um, you know, with with the team at CBS, and they think it's a great idea. Um, you know, so I'm in the process now of of winding through the the real estate stage of it, so that we can actually. You know, get going on the actual you know, set side of it, and of course, I've got Mike and Denise Okuda, who you know literally did every graphic on that mm-hmm. show. And mm-hmm. Doug Drexler is is heavily involved. You know, they they all have a uh, an intimate knowledge of those sets, and they have a collection of, of things that will help in reproducing them. And again, when I do it, I don't want to present it like it's you know an amusement park. I really want people to be able to come in and you know walk on the set and, and see the lighting all of those kinds of things. I really want them to kind of feel like the show's still in production, but hey, the actors aren't here right now. You mentioned lighting. You mentioned the set design. How much of, or I, my question is, what access did you have when reconstructing this set here in Ticonderoga? At, well, uh, define access now. What do you, what are we... So the blueprints of the set, uh, access to original designs, things of that nature, or are you working from... Well, I had, you know, I, I was... Uh, good friends with Bill Tice, who was the costume designer on the original show before he passed away. And I have a full working set of blueprints for this soundstage. Um, There were some small elements that we didn't have any reference on. But a lot of things that we did, you know, after we built, you know, we went to the blueprints and we did the framing and all that kind of stuff. But but to get the fine details, you know, that people are looking at, we had to go into the episodes. You have to do screen captures and then blow things up and start looking. You know, you, there's no blueprint for what is that thing they hung on the wall? You know, you, but it's there, and it's right. and it's in you know sixty out of eighty episodes. And um, I'm from the Roddenberry school, as far as the Enterprise is concerned, that it's a character, you know, probably the most important character of Star Trek. And we've we've lived with it now for fifty three years. People know it intimately. So if you get it wrong, what are they going to see? They're going to see what's wrong and not what's right. right. So the goal was to get it right, you know. So if there was some weird pipe looking doodad on the wall, we would go in and do these elaborate you know, blow-ups of these things and then hand it off to somebody that, that, you know, lathes wood or turns metal or sculpts and say, this is what we got to have. And that's an interesting point with the props because so many things on the original series were, were repurposed objects or uh, how, how much of that were you able to discern what the original object was and how much was it just, we need this thing that was a cylinder with this weird phalange off of it? <laughs> a lot of it we were able to find, you know, um, Again, the games, the things that they, you know, the physical hand props, I think a lot, like you said, were repurposed. So in looking back, you know, there's now 50-odd years of fandom, and there's a whole subculture of people that collect props, reproduce them, build them. So there's a lot of shared knowledge, um, you know, that's happened over the years. So that part was fairly easy. Um, Again, what is this weird pipe thing hanging on the wall? You know, we've 
we've done our homework. Some of that stuff was molds that were hidden under the stage. Some of it was pieces of styrofoam packaging, things that you can't find anymore because they were, you know, in and of themselves garbage when they were using them. So that's stuff that you have to make. You have to look at a photograph. You've got to figure out proportions, and then you've got to turn it over to a craftsman and say, it's got to look like that. One of the things that make this set come alive when you're walking through it is, in fact, the lighting. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the meticulousness that goes into trying to recreate the lighting of a 1960s show. It's it's not easy um, because it's, it, it, it is a very stylized form of lighting that they don't do anymore. Um, thankfully, one of, one of the acquaintances that I made over the years working on fan films is a guy named Jeff Barklage. Uh, Jeff was friends or, and, and or worked with Jerry Finnerman, who of course was the quintessential DP of the original show. So he learned a lot from, from him. And one of the things that Jeff brought to this project was these um, die-cut pieces of metal, which in Hollywood they call gobos mm -hmm. or cookies. And they clipped those in front of the lights, and they cast these really cool shadows on the wall. Well, Jeff actually you know, has one of the original ones from the original series. Was that... Right outside of engineering, yeah, you'll, see it, you'll see it all over. It's yeah, actually, yeah. yeah, and there's actually another one that sort of um, there's a couple of uh, stills that you can find online or maybe in books, and you have to know what you're looking for. Um, but there's a couple of behind the scenes pictures, and you see that there's another gobo, and you can see it, and it kind of looks like um, half of a butterfly's wing, for lack of a better description. And that's that's another one that we are you know getting ready to put in. But they're amazing because when you put them in front of the colored lights, you get that weird film noir kind of shadowing that, that the first season, you know, was really known for. Um, and, and then Jeff just, you know, picked the color palette. You know, we watched the episodes and we said, you know, we really like the lighting in this episode. Let's try to mimic that. Um, and, it's, and it's really subtle, but it works because when the doors open and you step into that, that environment and you just, all of a sudden, it feels like I, you're watching a color TV. Right, 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 absolutely. So you allude to the so you started talking about TNG and trying to get that going but you're not done here though it's no no again there's a couple of additional sets plus we're talking about doing the interior of the shuttlecraft mm. uh, we, we've got most of the uh, the antique components for that including the chairs right. so we're, we're looking at doing the shuttle interior but th those are kind of little additions I think the major work um, we're finishing up on the the engineering ceiling this fall but I think the major work is pretty much behind us as far as that goes um, we're always going to do different exhibits. We're going to change things, you know, keep adding to the collection, which, which keeps people more interested. Um, what I find amazing is, the, is still the popularity of that show. After all these years, yeah. you know, there's still something yeah. uh, about it that keeps people wanting to come back and right. come back and come back. Um, and Next Generation, again, that's, that's the other question they ask us all the time. Are you going to do TNG? So the answer to that is yes, we are working on TNG. It's a fair point about TOS. I mean, even the newer productions, you have the new movies, which are set in that era. Mm -hmm. You have the new TV show, Discovery, which is set leading up to that era. Um, what's, your, what's your take on that as a, as a lifelong fan like ourselves, like our, a lot of our listeners? Um, why do people keep coming back to it, you think? I think my take on it is that um, it was very relevant at a time that it needed to be relevant, but people didn't realize it, number one. I think they've, they've discovered it after the fact. Two, it's a feel-good show. Um, you guys probably are aware that I've, you know, I've earned my living as Elvis, as an actor as playing Elvis for many, many years. And Elvis's music is generational. It's introduced from the grandparents to the, to the kids, to their kids, and so on and so forth. And somebody asked me, why do you think that is? And 
you can listen to an Elvis Presley song recorded in 1956, and it's a happy, fun kind of music. Kids gravitate to that, and then it just, you know, keeps going. You can listen to a Frank Sinatra song. Plus, Elvis's music doesn't sound dated, right? You listen to a Frank Sinatra song recorded the same year, and as good as it is, it sounds like it was recorded 60 years ago. Listen to Heartbreak Hotel. It sounds like it was recorded yesterday. I don't know if it's in his delivery, but Star Trek's the same. That's the point I'm trying to get to. Star Trek is not only generational because, you know, your parents watched it or your grandparents watched it and you found it on television and now it's, we're introducing it to our kids and so forth. Uh, but it feels good. When you watch it, it is so hopeful, you know, and so uplifting and, and it's an adventure at the same time. You know, you, the, kids, the kids see it as a, you know, action, adventure, shoot 'em up kind of space show and the adults come into it and they're like, wow, I, I, didn't, I don't remember saying that the first time around. Um, that's my take on it. I, I think it was brilliant. I think it's brilliant writing. Um, I think the cast was perfect, and, and Gene Roddenberry uh, stuck to his guns. God bless him. You know, he didn't care. You know that he was in the middle of the of the uh, civil rights movement. He put Nichelle on the bridge. He didn't care that you know we were in the middle of the Vietnam War. He put George. He didn't care what the repercussions would be. He just did these things because he knew it was right. You know, he put Walter up there in the middle of the of the of the uh, of the Cold War. People take that stuff for granted today, but you know how powerful that must have been to sit there at 7.30 at night on NBC and see those things on national television when you just watched the news and those same people were blowing each other apart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Gene, Gene had guts. Yeah. He really did. Yeah. yeah. So you've had events over the last few years. You've had uh, original cast members coming up. You have Carl Urban. That, that, talk to us about these events and what people can look forward to. Well, as you know, we just had the captain himself. He was just here. Um, and he's coming back. He had such a great time. He's coming back. Uh, so, yeah, we're thrilled. Um, it's going to happen in early December. And uh, we, we didn't know, you know, how Mr. Shatner would even react. But uh, he appeared to have the time of his life. He spent a lot of personal time with fans, which, I, which I was, I've never seen. Um, I think our specialty is bringing in, um, you know, people for these events and keeping the crowds minimal. Sometimes we have to charge a little more, but we keep the crowds minimal so that people can really interact with these people. Um, you know, it's where, whereas if you go to a major metropolitan area, you just you know, get a lot of face time. So we're proud of that. And um, uh, we have a lot more of them coming up, a lot of different themed ones coming up. We're, we're going to be celebrating you know, trials and tribulations uh, with some of the cast. And, um, of course, we're going to do Star Trek Film Academy uh, coming up, which I think is really exciting. It's got a lot of potential. You know, everybody, as I said, how many people have made fan films, and uh, we want to give them um, the ultimate way uh, to make a fan film by making one with people who make Star Trek, you know, working with, with people that actually put the show together uh, in front of and behind the cameras, teaching them the ropes, you know, giving them a week-long, uh, you know, course, if you will, in, in how you make a Star Trek show. Um, how cool is that? You know, and then you walk out at the end of the week with your own Star Trek show. That's exciting. That's yeah, exciting. that's for a really lot of filmmaking. Exciting. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You know, you touched a little bit because I, I, I wanted to ask this question: Why Ticonderoga? Um, well, there's two but, two big reasons for yeah. that. Um, in fact, the number one question that I hear is is why here? Um, and, and you have to understand that when I'm touring as Elvis, I, I'm 32 years. When you when you're living out of a suitcase and you're in a, in big cities and doing, you know, you get to a point where you want to go home. And I grew up here, so I came back. Um, and uh, took over family property and, and realized, you know, when I'm not working, I can just kind of disappear. I could come back to this beautiful 
you know, country and the, and, and the lakes and all this kind of stuff. And there's a huge tourist trade up here. Um, but the, the second reason is it's affordable. Mm-hmm. You know, real estate is not cheap. If you tried to build a movie studio in, in Manhattan, you know, so people could tour through it, it would be millions and millions of dollars. It would be very expensive to do. You couldn't do it in Hollywood. They don't do it there now. I mean, Universal has their thing, but, I mean, you, you, ha- you would have to have a lot of money, which getting started, I didn't. Um, fortunately, I could, have, I could afford the real estate here. So that's why we did it here. Well, I encourage anybody to make the trek. It's not that bad. It's about no. three hours, four hours from New York City. Uh, how far are you? Are we from yeah. Canada? The Canadian We're about border? two hours from Montreal, yeah. and we get a lot of a lot of Canadian traffic. A lot of Star Trek fans up there. I'm amazed. And we're only, you know, it's about eight hours to Toronto where they're filming Discovery. Uh, I played up there, so I know I know the drive intimately. But right. you know, we're actually pretty central. We are we are about two hours from the capital of Albany and we're an hour from Burlington, Vermont. So we're, you know, you've got two major airports, two hours one way, one hour another. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful scenic drive when you come up here. Uh, you know, we've got two gorgeous lakes and Lake George Village. There's a lot of things to do up here. And of course, Fort Ticonderoga down the road. Right, right, so. right, right. Well, Mr. Colley, thank you so much for having us. Thank it's been guys. a real pleasure speaking with you. We look forward to uh, bumping into you at uh, STLV this year. We will be there, yeah, with all the with all the fine details on the launch of uh, the new film academy. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much. Thanks, guys. Now, as you just heard our interview with Mr. Colley himself, we figured that we'd give a little away team debrief uh, of what Jason and I experienced while we were there. So, Elijah, you can start off by um, explain to us what was the weekend like? So what does the tour consist of? So you walk in, it's hidden in, in this in what probably could have been a Woolworth back in the day. Coming up to it, there, there's no doubt that this is this is a, a Star Trek stop. There's a big sign right at the street at the edge of the street there that says Star Trek tour. You turn into this massive parking lot. And out in front is the Galileo, right, Jace? It was a Galileo recreation, a little fake shuttlecraft. Along with a a side door entrance that says Desilu Studios, cast and crew only, right? This is probably just for them to load and unload things. But walking in is is this first part of the lobby um, that has a salt vampire and a Gorn in really great detail. It was just really phenomenal. And and this is before you even enter the, the main lobby. Correct. This is before you even enter the the main lobby. Once you enter the main lobby, there's a lot of merchandising. Then, not a lot. It's 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 tasteful merchandising. Uh, T-shirts, some comic books. You know, um, CBS licensed products for sale. Tribbles. Right. Tribbles. Then there's this massive display case that it just shows a whole bunch of artifacts from the original series: costumes, set pieces, prop. You name it. Well, freestanding in the midst of this L-shaped set of display cases around one wall and then on the back wall. They also had a camera rig from Desilu with one of the clappers uh, from mm-hmm. TOS and a couple of film cans, one of which I noticed was from the same episode and uh, day as the clapper. And, yes. and Elijah, this, this isn't only a recreation of the interior of the Starship Enterprise. This is also a recreation of the actual soundstage that they, that they produced the show on for Desilu. Correct. Right, right. As as James Colley had described it in the interview, this is this is more than just pretending that you're walking onto the Enterprise. This is very similar 
and closely replicated to the actual soundstage that the actors would have experienced whilst working on the original series. So there is a there is a break of immersion, right? There are still some fluorescent lights above head. There's no ceiling to the Enterprise uh, corridors. Um, you see the Fresnels, you see the lighting shining down on the set because the experience is to be less, or uh, the experience is to not be so much I am on the bridge of the Enterprise in this fictional world, but I am on the soundstage of Desilu, at Desilu Studios as any actor would have been. Now that said, it is still an amazing immersive experience because those sets weren't all flawlessly lit with the, the background sounds and all that at that time. So it's a balance between the two. Even with the set dressing, they, they chose particular moments in the show to emulate or a, or a composite of certain episodes to get the best look and feel of some of the sets because we know some of the set, some of the rooms were used for multiple purposes the uh, briefing room was also used as the rec room so the briefing room also had on display a number of the games and some other things there's a little known fact about the briefing room uh, that yes. blew my mind i still think back in it and i'm like and i'm i'm emulating for those of you listening to the show my head exploding so it turns out that on the set of TOS, in that briefing room, not all, there were two flags. And one of those flags was a Cuban flag. What? Yes, it was a Cuban flag. So they, at, at, the, at the set tour, have adapted the Cuban flag where instead of there being a star in the middle of the red triangle, it's the uh, emblem of the Federation, right? The planets and the, the olive branches. But on set, it was a Cuban flag. And there's no explanation as to why. There's no, there, there's, there, was, there was just a Cuban flag on the, now, you know, these flags never wave, so you never really see the whole thing. But I was just re-watching an episode and there it is, the blue and white stripes of, and, and, and red um, accent of the Cuban flag in TOS. So I can only, one can only assume that this was a bit of, a, of an uh, homage to Desi Arnaz, right? Because it was Desi Lu Productions. This was, you know, run by Lucille Ball. I can only imagine that that's why, like it was just this little Easter egg for Desi. And we'll be posting pictures by the time that this episode is released on Friday. We'll have an album up on Facebook with, uh, with a lot of the pictures that we took. And you'll see me there standing next to the Cuban flag. And I'm really excited. <laughs> it was amazing. It was phenomenal. So tell, us, so tell us your thoughts and your feelings as you take your first steps through those doors onto the set. The preamble to stepping in is them explaining how the, the doors work and how they got the timing and how... The, the director would call out doors and someone standing behind would, would pull on the cords and the doors would open and sometimes they didn't do it right or at the right time or weren't paying attention so you'd get the blooper reel on that. But those doors swish open and you go from I'm standing in a lobby looking at the, the backside of something to I'm looking down a, a Technicolor hallway on the Enterprise. So that first moment you know, say what you will about immersion or not, it it carries you over there into it's some. Yeah, it is a Hollywood magic moment 
where you can both simultaneously see that it's a set, but it's it's a set from over 50 years ago. Yeah, and and uh, I got to give kudos to um, those working uh, with with uh, James Cawley because they they really have a passion for Star Trek and they really help set the stage. So and I and I know what that feeling's like because when I first saw that I was absolutely blown away and and while I'm not the biggest TOS fan, it took me several minutes before I really understood that it that, that where I was was real. Now refresh my memory, are you being led around or are you sort of self-guiding on this tour? Is it is it like a proper tour or is it a Go and have a look. No, it's a proper tour. Somebody, somebody is leading us around from room to room, uh, through the hallways, through the corridors. Now, I don't want to go through each particular room because we. What I want the takeaway for this debrief is to really encourage people to experience this. So I, I would say, so you go through and you go through the med bay again, gorgeous. You go through the debriefing room like we mentioned earlier, gorgeous. Engineering was stunning. Absolutely stunning. Between the lighting, between the force perspective, um, the materials used, the multi-level, I mean, absolutely beautiful. Jason, I don't know if you have anything that that you want to add to that. Well, you know, I also really loved uh, having played the missions, especially in uh, Agents of Yesterday, set in the TOS era. That also helped drive this home because it's the only other time I really had the experience of being, quote-unquote, in these type of places and sets. So to be there in person and see what painstaking detail went into crafting the virtual environments, which I know uh, Nick and Thomas, I think it was, made the pilgrimage out to the Star Trek tour as part of their prep for for that expansion. So that that just deepened it for me. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not just I saw this in 2D on television, but you know, I've also explored a virtual version of the 3D environment. And then to see it all uh, live and lit up is just super fun. Like, it's just a, a transmedia experience. Right, now that, right. That actually brings up a good question because Elijah and uh, I, can't, I can't remember, Jace, um, they actually bring the TOS bridge to STLV. And you can go and they do um, photo ops and you can go and see it. And I don't mean to be compare and contrast, but... It, Elijah, I know you've been on that bridge at STLV, and the way that you're talking about this set, it's like a whole different universe. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, so what's that like? So in comparison, what you experience at a convention oftentimes is this standalone set, right? You're, you're, not, you're not in an emotional journey throughout the entire thing, right? This was, this was an emotional journey throughout the entire thing. And I... And I there's a part of me that regrets having to keep my my head down on my phone and taking pictures because i mean for the podcast because i it it was hard for me to to also just take it all in right it was my brain was in, in different places at the same time when you're at a convention and it's just the bridge mind you the bridge for stlv was absolutely gorgeous and stunning it was beautiful there by comparison, though, you're, you're, you're building up. You're experiencing all these things. You're going through these sets. The lighting is there. You're, you're on the Enterprise. And I, I guess the best here's, – here's, here's what makes it different. You go from engineering up a short ramp, and suddenly you're in a turbo lift. And the turbo lift handles are there. The red doors are there. And somebody says, 
doors and Q's doors, the way Jace explained in the beginning, and you are on the bridge of the Enterprise. I mean, I'm getting chills and goosebumps just thinking about it. Yeah, the whole <laughs> tour builds up to that moment. It, it's stunning. It's I'm almost actually getting a little teary at too. <laughs> it is absolutely gorgeous. When those doors open and you're on the bridge, you are walking through as if you were William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, you, whoever, anybody who was on that show walking through that turbo lift. It is no words, no words. Honestly, the biggest takeaway is that compared to a convention, this is probably the most intimate experience, intimate and immersive experience you'll ever have with Star Trek. A convention, there's a lot of things happening at, at, at any given moment, whether you're at a creation convention or you're at New York Comic Con and there's a Star Trek panel. This tour, this facility, it, it really is a pilgrimage. You know, we, we say every year that Star Trek Las Vegas is kind of the pilg big pilgrimage for, for all the Trekkies. That's true. This needs to be on that list. This needs to be a very close second. And and it's it's not a it's not like a get you in, get you out kind of tour. They take your time, they take small mm -hmm. groups, they let mm -hmm. you breathe. And I'd, like Elijah, did you were you pressed at all for how much time you could spend taking photos on the bridge? No, no, not at all. Not at all. And I, no, I really don't think it had yeah, not in the least and and you know, Anthony, you were there on your own before you were on priority one. I don't mm -hmm. think our you know, being priority one or a podcast that does Star Trek had anything to do with, with the with our with our experience on the tour. They don't. They didn't rush us. And Anthony, you 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 went again before priority one, so you had this experience as yourself. And I and I went with my wife and my kids, who were you know two and five at the time, um, and or, or actually just under two and five, and it was just the four of us on the tour. It was just the four of us. So, so for Trek Conderoga, it's going to be August twenty fourth to twenty sixth, and in addition to Carl Urban, Robin Curtis will be there, and also the Akutas. And, and the great thing about that is that it's going to be an intimate experience, right? It's not going to be hundreds and hundreds of people there. Tickets are limited. The space is limited, right? So they have to keep it. They have to keep it small. And the nice thing about that is that you not only will you develop relationships with with other Trekkies that are there, but you might actually be able to have an actual conversation with the, one of the guests because it's so small and so humble. Like that's really one of the other things I got out of it was a, a humility, a sense of humility. James Cauley knows that it's it's in Ticonderoga, New York. It's not in Albany. It's not in it's not in Buffalo. It's not in New York City. It's not in Las Vegas. It's in Ticonderoga, which isn't easy, but it's a beautiful town. There's so many beautiful things to do while you're in the area. Take in the mountains, get bit by mosquitoes, have your face swell up like mine. Um, Yay! But, yeah. <laughs> but I, this is something that was absolutely worth it. This was absolutely worth it for me. This honestly touched my heart in a way that other Star Trek experiences have not. Yes. <laughs> but Jace, I, you know, first of all, I want to thank you for 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 uh, being able to to drive out to uh, join me this weekend. First of all, it's great to see you, brother. It's been far too long, um, and I'm glad that you were there. I'm sorry, Anthony, that you couldn't make it, and, and Jake as well. But it's going to be there. It's not going anywhere. And I hope to see you guys there and 
some other Trekkies there, perhaps. Maybe we'll do a Priority One event at Ticonderoga. Definitely. Well, thanks, Elijah and Jace, for letting us know what you guys got up to last weekend in Ticonderoga. Now let's find out what happened this week in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. With Friday the 13th creeping up. It's almost a certainty that the spooky Star Trek Online mission Hearts and Minds is back for a brief scare. To acquire this mission, Federation characters and Romulan allies can hail Franklin Drake, while Klingon characters and their Romulan allies can contact Kamen. Completing this mission will grant you either a special rare duty officer, a Vulcan Lerpa, or the zombie dance emote. Even if you have completed this mission in the past, you can gain an additional copy of the rewards. Captains will need to act fast, though. This mission will only be available until around 6 a.m. Pacific time on July 14th on both console and PC. I'm going to have to get back into the game, and, and I don't think I have the zombie dance emote. Because it's Thriller! <laughs> in the night. Now, for those captains who are playing Star Trek Online on console and eager to get their hands on Victory is Life, well, you don't have to wait for long. On Tuesday, July 24th, Xbox and PS4 captains can join the cast of Deep Space Nine and journey into the Gamma Quadrant to battle the Herc and save the galaxy. They will also have access to playing as a Jemadar and start at level 60. Now, if you're worried about the potential of having to start all the way from the beginning, well, you can get your newly commissioned Delta recruits ready and take advantage of a double XP event from now until July 23rd on console. Gain a 100% bonus for all skill points and expertise. Captains, it's worth noting that this will stack with other XP boosts. So take advantage of it. Get your characters up to 60 so that you're ready for Victory is Life when it launches on console. Now, they did a similar thing on PC right before right. Victory is Life launches. And I went in and made a whole bunch of Delta recruits and leveled up several of them during uh, this section of the event. So Now, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, Star Trek Online, you can level up a character, especially on one of these XP events, on a weekend. You you can easily if you're if you play for several hours a day. I what I'd like to do is I'll go in and I'll actually purchase an XP boost from the C store and add that to it. And and you can actually you can actually level up a character in a day or two just just playing for like six hours or so. Right, right, right. The summer event on Risa is continuing, and many players have noticed a new Ferengi taking over the artifact hunt. If this new Ferengi sounds familiar, well, that's because we last saw Sovak trying to steal the Tox Uthot from Vosh and Captain Jean-Luc Picard on Risa in the episode Captain's Holiday. The surprising part is that DS9 actor Max Gredenchek has reprised his original Star Trek role for the game. Kudos to Cryptic for taking the time to add this detail. Also this weekend on console, everything in the low buy store is 20% off. So now may be the best time to uh, get that starship or weapon that you've been eyeing. Contact your local Lobby Consortium sales rep today. So I know we haven't had much of an opportunity of actually giving our own critiques of Victory is Life, and I want to take an opportunity to do that. Um, as many of you know, 
I am not necessarily the biggest Deep Space Nine fan. What? I am on record. What? Yeah, I am on record with Ira Stephen Bear himself saying that it's not my favorite of the series. For that, listen to our Star Trek Las Vegas coverage last year. I have to say that the entire team at Cryptic Studios blew it out of the water with this expansion. This has probably been, for me, the most immersive story telling that Star Trek Online has ever offered. So much so that I am currently re-watching all of Deep Space Nine. Like, I am actually giving Deep Space Nine a serious shot. And I'm watching it episode by episode from the beginning, and I want to be able to... I, I want to watch all of it in time for STLV in case Kenna decides to throw me under the bus again with Iris Steven Bear. <laughs> I want to be ready. Perhaps my favorite mission is, in fact, Quark's Lucky Seven. The ones that, that that is everybody's. I mean, the gameplay was pretty straightforward and simple, right? You, it, it wasn't complicated. I didn't have to spend time... Actually, the math problem, I did have to spend some time with the math problems. I had to, like, load up Stowiki and try to find a, an easier <laughs> way, just so I can get through it, because I wanted. To, I did want to get through it. But the animators knocked it out of the park with this. I felt that I was in an episode of Deep Space Nine with Armin Shimmerman, Max Kredenchek, Jeffrey Combs, uh, and Aaron Eisenberg. I mean, this was just a astounding. The thing about this this expansion is that we are now introducing a new mark to our items, right? So now we have to upgrade our items again. Okay, I get that. Gameplay is still very much the same, right? Nothing nothing necessarily groundbreaking has been introduced in terms of what a player can do with their character. However, the storytelling and the method by which we were on this journey is phenomenal. Absolutely astounding. I'm okay with there not being some kind of new system, you know, like, or a revamp to exploration or a revamp to the boff system. I was on Deep Space Nine. I was with these actors. I was with these characters in a way that I have not felt before. It really started for me when I first logged into the game after the update. I beamed onto DS9, and there I saw an identical replica of the set from my favorite Star Trek series. And the music, as I said in our interview with Al, was just really set me in that mode of being in the show. And then to go on that journey and story with the DS9 characters, I just, you know, I can't say enough about how amazed I am that they were able to elevate my experience playing this game and as a Star Trek fan to this to this point. And Quark's Lucky 7 is a very special mission to go on. And the thing I love about it the most is that when you're watching episodes like The Magnificent Ferengi or when you're watching even Star Trek 3 when Kirk sort of assembles his team to steal the Enterprise out of space dock, you know, you 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 want to be a part of that so bad. And then in this mission, my favorite part is actually, I mean, besides the Lek explosion moment, is actually when Nog says, oh, don't worry, I got a guy for that. And then your character walks in and becomes part of the story. Yes, yes. And I, I, I that was such an interesting way to invest my character into the story. 
I, I totally didn't see it coming and it just blew me away. And I and I can't imagine the time and talent it took to really put all those pieces together for that episode, adding the brand new tech that they tested out in the episode Renegade's Regret, the comedic writing and how it, it really fired on all cylinders. And I know how tough it is to write comedy and they really nailed it. And another one of my favorite parts of that mission is when you're walking around the trophy room and there's all those things that you can look at, including the lockbox or the inflatable Klingon ship. Um, They have these little funny comments and stuff to say, but they really did a great job. And then to have it culminate in this finale episode where you have to go and defend the founders homeworld against the Herc. It it felt like an epic battle. And it was, you know, the story was a little predictable. You were going to save the day. But just the way that it transpired and at the end when there's that montage of of what people are doing and how it appears as though everyone's failing is very much a Deep Space Nine thing to me. Because in Deep Space Nine, I feel like, you know, things don't always go the way that you think they're going to go. And when Al mentioned in the interview that they took some inspiration from episodes like The Siege at AR-558, I I really felt it in this finale episode that things just don't go the way you're hoping and expecting, but yet there's a positive outcome because of things that are happening elsewhere. They did a wonderful job. I loved the, the emotion that was involved in that episode and in all these episodes. And that's really what uh, kept me involved and, and really what, um, you know, I keep saying it elevated my, my experience playing this game. And in other Star Trek gaming news, if you're a fan of Star Trek Adversaries, the digital customizable card game has finally arrived on mobile devices. Well, at least on iOS. You can download the game from the App Store right now. So choose your ship, customize your deck, and jump right into the fight. And Captains, we want to give you a reminder that you can join us on Discord. If you are playing Star Trek games, join us and chat with us and tell us what you're playing and what you think of the games that you are involved in. For more information, just head over to PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO373. And now, Captains, let's open those hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See? Well, Captains, this is the part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Episode 372's community question was, what are your thoughts on the final episode of Star Trek Online's expansion for Victory is Life? From Facebook, Christopher Batts writes in, absolutely fantastic all around. Truly a labor of love. The voice acting, of course, added to the overall episode feel of it, but everything all in all, just fantastic. The inclusion of the Niners theme this year on Risa just makes it so much better. Hey, as a buddy said, I wish all episodes could be like this. Beautifully done, for sure. But they also set a pretty high bar for themselves. I'm not worried about Star Trek Online setting a high bar for themselves. They always one-up themselves. Yeah, because I, I I, always go back to the Iconian War. There were some absolutely fantastic episodes in the Iconian War. Uh, really thought-provoking, beautiful episodes. And um, I've been comparing all of the featured episodes since then back to the Iconian War. So if they've managed to, you know, top that again uh, and set another high bar, I'm okay with it because I'm fairly confident they will put out 
more excellent content in the future. And the best part is that this this series of episodes has our favorite characters in it, which makes it even better than the Iconian War arc. What, you're not a fan of Sela? <laughs> From PriorityOnePodcast.com, D. Canescu says, I enjoyed the final episode, Home, but it was a fairly predictable story. I'm going to try to dodge spoilers here, but I'm pretty annoyed when Wayun showed up. To be clear, was annoyed at his actions and not the voiceover performance. Combs always brings his A-game. The story was pretty well done, though, all things considered. I did cringe, though, when Martok made reference to something I was not expecting. Unrelated note about Expansion 4, I noticed that when you level up to 65, enemies hit harder and take longer to die than before. But the damage scaling is a bit skewed. I feel like the difference between Mark 14 and Mark 15 is way more significant than Mark 13 to 14. It's near impossible to beat certain missions now unless you upgrade gear to, at the very minimum, Mark 13. Budget builds now require upgrades, so that seems a bit off in my opinion. However, it would be nice if mission reward gear upgraded for free to Mark 13, as that might help remedy that issue. P.S. The show is always fun, and P1 remains the number one podcast I always listen to as soon as it goes up. Keep up the good work. The shows are always on point. Well, thank you very much, first off. And um, I I agree a little bit. I think that part of the issue with the enemies hitting harder at 65 is that the Herc have some different tactics. And so... I think that they that you know as Al mentioned in our in our interview with him they they switched up the tactics of the Herc because people were relying players were relying on certain tactics and they wanted them to sort of uh, think differently in terms of of the the powers and abilities that they were using. I just realized that that's also probably why I was struggling to get through even these PVE missions is that I'm still running Mark 14 gear, huh? I'm going to have to do an upgrade weekend. Darn it. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, though. I, I upgraded to Mark 15 gear and played the missions and still had some issues. But after that interview with Al, I changed up my tactics in the missions and had a much easier time. From Facebook, Sherry Wood says, I truly believe this has been one of the best story arcs in Stowe. A lot of effort was put into these stories, and I feel that they captured the essence of Deep Space Nine. We'd also like to thank a couple of sharp listeners, Ryan Ryder on Facebook and Sam Ronin on Twitter, for pointing out our mistaken claim of omniscience. We claimed we knew what you, our listeners, were thinking. Sadly, we didn't. Sometimes our community manager falls asleep at the wheel, but both Ryan and Sam gave us a chance to correct the mistake quickly. Thank you both for your keen eyes. From Patreon, Christopher Keen writes in, in reference to our episode 372 discussion about uh, upcoming Star Trek projects, pass me the wrench. Anthony was very spot on with the Defiant reference. I loved Smallville back in the day, how it showed each week how Clark got his powers one by one. This would be a series that wouldn't be about the ships of the line. This would be about the ships of tomorrow's line. Hmm. Pass me the wrench. And from Patreon, James Golding says, Sorry my feedback caused an issue with you being able to actually read it. You guys are amazing. Uh, thank you, James. <laughs> we can keep this no going worries, for James. as long as we want to. So, yeah. We can. 
Well, that wraps up episode 373 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But we can't forget to send a special thanks to our Patreon supporters, Jim DeVico, Navy Boats Lou, Joshua Selig, Diana Gunther, Peter Archibald, Starkicker, and David S. Now, Captains, even though we might not have a community question this week, you know that we'd love to hear from you. So leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or tweet us via at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, be sure to spend time with Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada on Saturday nights via Twitch. If you're interested, just head over to PriorityOneArmada.com and sign up to join the fleet in-game. Every Saturday night, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel, where they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as highlighting some of the amazing members of our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, and our listeners to earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all Star Trek Online players, new and old, Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash priority one. This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash priority one. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at guardfrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons. Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to skin a wyvern. Head over to Heroes Rise Podcast to discover their secrets. A special thanks to James Cauley for his warm welcome at the Star Trek tour in Ticonderoga, New York. And thanks to Star Trek Online's Nick Duguid for talking with us about his experiences at Make-A-Wish America. Don't forget, Captains, visit our Make-A-Wish donation page and consider a contribution. And don't forget, Captains, if you're able, consider donating to our Make-A-Wish campaign over at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash Make-A-Wish. Thanks to our audio editors, including Brandon Parker. Thanks to producer Jake Morgan for assisting in the writing of our show and social media endeavors. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to Patreon associate producers, Navy Boats Lou and Jim DeVico. Most importantly, Captains, a big thanks to you the Star Trek community, and our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Engage.
Transfer complete. This is Elijah. I wear clothes. Sync one. <laughs> this is Kenna. I mostly don't. Sync two. <laughs> this is Anthony. I'm just here for the show. Sync three. That could go way in different directions, brother. <laughs> Intro in three. <laughs> two. It, was... it wasn't the transporter room on the left? Oh, yeah, it was the transporter Oh, it was the transporter room. room. Yeah, yeah. Objection, leading the witness. <laughs> <laughs> and I think... I'm going to th throw a shoe at whoever's peeping that horn. <laughs> like, holy sh**. This is Eliza. <laughs> <laughs> the Rhine and Spine falls mainly on the line. Did you forget who you are? <laughs> Push into the end, and then I think we can... We can, uh, we'll have to do an extra sweeper, and then I think what we should do is take the first one and then maybe make reference to the ones later on, <laughs> further down the list. Are you, are you, is this, can, can, hang, on, hang, on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I need, I need to get something to write this down Kenna? because Kenna? this is, Kenna? this is like, this is out Kenna? of here. Kenna, 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 I'm glad we're having a production meeting on Thursday. <laughs> Am I fired? I have. I have some I have some serious things that I want to talk to you about. Women at warp and the Trek vi and <laughs> the Trek vials. The little vials of Trek. <laughs> <laughs> All I can funny. see is Ken in a glass jar. <laughs> <laughs> All of us. All of us in a little glass jar. My mind was rendered blank by your passion podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network